How great was that, right? How great was that? I, I am so in love with our serve directors and our serve ministry at each of our locations because they do a fantastic job of helping us serve our community. And that's because you give. And we can't do stuff like that without you giving. So thank you for that. So having said that, I have a confession to make. Um, and my confession is that I've heard, of lot of, I've heard a lot of things in my life that I chose not to believe because I didn't understand them in the moment. And I disregarded them only to find out they came true later in my life. Let me say that again. So I have heard, of, heard a lot of things, phrases, sentences, truths in my life that in the moment I disregarded because they didn't sound like they were true. They sounded odd, they sounded absurd, they sounded weird, only to find out that as I got a little bit older, they came true. Does anybody resonate with the fact that at one time you were a child and your parent told you to do something and you thought that's absurd? Anybody in the room? Yes, we're, we're all in that together. I remember when I was younger, my parents would say things to me and I'd be like, that's absurd, mom. That's absurd, dad. That doesn't make sense. How in the world can that make sense, right? And they would say things like, well, you'll, you'll understand when you're older. Thanks. That doesn't help me right now, right? They would say things like, no pain, no gain. Started hearing that when I was a, a young child and, and learning that there are sometimes there are absurd statements that come true later in life. They would say things like, Eric, it's not what you know, it's who you know. You heard it too. <laughs> That's right. Um, other statements like actions speak louder than, wow, we had all the same parents growing up. <laughs> we did. We were told a lot of absurd th things that sounded absurd in the moment, but as we kind of stepped back and as we lived a little bit more, we recognized, hey, there's some truth to that. And I learned early on that there's a thing called paradoxes. Everybody say that with me. Paradoxes. Now, a paradox a paradox is an, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement that proves to be true, okay? It's a statement that you go, well, that sounds absurd. That sounds like it's not true. That sounds like it's self-contradicting, only to find out it proves to be true. Some of these you may have heard before. L let me rattle off a few and see if you know these. Number one, the more you try to impress others, the less impressive you are. Has anybody tried to impress other people? Yes, we're all guilty of that, only to find out the less impressive we are when we try to do that. Number two, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So I'm an academic junkie. I love to study. I love to read, and I'm a big-time nerd, and I've made peace with that. But I often realize that when I'm learning something new, and I turn around and I realize five minutes ago I didn't know that truth, and I go, well, if I didn't know that truth, what else do I not know, right? And so the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. What else? Less is more. Less is more. Often what is less complicated is more appreciated. So less is more. That's a paradox, right? What's another one? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Anybody's mom and dad ever tell them this when you were dating, when you were younger? Oh, son. Daughter, yeah, it's okay. It's okay you can't be with them right now because absence makes the heart grow fonder. I'm going to say, Mom, that's not helping with the lady situation right now. She likes it. Uh, anyway, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And 
Uh, this this was uh, this this statement came to us from the great the, uh, the great theologian uh, uh, the great band uh, Cinderella of the eighties. They're these wonderful theologians. Y'all remember them? You don't know what you've got until it's gone. Anybody remember that song? Yeah, that's right. Don't know what you've got until it's gone. It's a paradox. It's a, see, and, we, and and what I noticed is we live in a world of paradoxes, and sometimes they sound very absurd only to find out that they come true later in life. There's another paradox that we all heard, and I have to thank my friend Amy Laughlin at our Oak Ridge location for reminding me of this one. I'm sure you either told this one to a friend or you were told this one by a friend and you wanted to punch him in the face, okay? So here's the one. If you love someone, set them free. If they come back, it's meant to be. Has every, anybody ever given this relationship advice to somebody going through a rough relationship? Oh, if you really love someone, set them free. If they come back, it's meant to be. You sound all smart, right? And they're just going, I'm going to kick you for telling me this garbage, right? Well, I, <laughs> as a teenager when we were dating, we didn't want to hear stuff like this. I had a friend of mine named Ryan when I was in college, and he dated this girl that constantly took advantage of him. Constantly and would treat him terrible and would say, uh, just, you know, stand him up all the time and then expect him to come groveling back and that it was his fault or something. And he would just come whining to me. And I'm like, Ryan, bro, come on. You know, if you love someone, set them free. If they come back, it's meant to be, right? I would, I would spit out this paradox to him. He'd be like, but Eric, I can't because I love her, right? We've all said that. I can't let her go because I love her. Well, I've spent a lot of time with God. I've journaled about this paradox, and I've evaluated my life and a lot of my friends' lives about this paradox. Here's the new conclusion that I've come to. If you love someone, set them free. If they come back, it means nobody else liked them. <laughs> Be careful who you let back in your life. Nobody else may have liked them, so uh, be, be careful about that. Here's... Here's why I want you to track with me, and here's what I think Jesus wants to, to, to tell us today. Jesus leads something called a reverse economy, a reverse economy. And what I mean by that is if you read through the New Testament, you start reading things like, you die to live. What? Yeah, if, if you really want to live, you die so that Jesus can live in you. That's a reverse economy. Another reverse economy principle that Jesus teaches in the New Testament is if you want to lead, serve. If you want to lead, serve. Well, that's not what our world teaches us. That's not what our culture teaches us. Our culture teaches if you want to lead, you get to the top. Jesus says, no, 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 if you want to lead, you get to the bottom. It's a reverse economy. Serve up. Uh, some of the other things he said, said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's a reverse economy. He said rejoice in trials. What? We're not supposed to rejoice in trials. That doesn't make sense. It's a reverse economy. Walk, we walk by faith and not by sight. No, I'm supposed to walk by sight. I'm supposed to I'm supposed to be clued in on what I'm seeing in front of me, and what I'm seeing in front of me is all that there is. That's reality. No, no, no. Jesus says, no, no, no. 
You walk by faith and not by sight. Sometimes the things that you will see, you have to trust God that he's going to help you in those moments. We walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to ask you if something rings a bell. George Costanza, opposite day. Does anybody recognize that? Anybody Seinfeld fan? So one of my favorite episodes of Seinfeld is when George Costanza realizes that his natural intuition gets him nowhere in life. So he, he, will, he will essentially try to, when he tries to get a job or he tries to get a date, he will do what he thinks he's naturally supposed to do, and he'll follow his natural intuition, right? And he's discovering that it's getting him nowhere. He's not getting a date, and he's not getting a job. And all of a sudden, he recognizes, hey, what if I, in every situation I encounter, what if I do the very opposite of my intuition? The very opposite of my intuition. And he declares a day in his life as opposite day. So you, you, see, you see George walking up to a girl, and the first thing he says, I think they're at a bar or something, first thing he says is, hi, I'm George, I'm 32, I live at home and I don't have a job, would you like to go out with me? And she says, yes. And, and he's stunned because he's like, but I'm doing everything against my natural intuition and it's working out. And this, it's kind of like that same principle of, and here's what I want you to understand. A lot of the things, track with me, a lot of the things that lead to the life that you want are going to sound counterintuitive. A lot of the things that Jesus is going to ask you to do to have the life that you want are not going to make sense in the moment. But over time, they'll make sense. Over time, they'll make sense. Solomon wrote a very powerful scripture in the Old Testament, in the book of uh, Proverbs. And he gives us this paradox. And the reason why I want to talk about paradoxes is there's a generosity paradox that he wants to tell us that can change our life. So follow me along in this scripture, Proverbs 11. Here we go. He says, give freely and become wealthy. Okay, we're getting into the opposites, the paradoxes. What, what, how does God, hold on. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper, and those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Eric, I don't understand. If I give freely, how can I be wealthy? Because if I'm giving my stuff away, I'm losing wealth, right? Well, that's what's, that's what's kind of logical, right? It's not, not the way God works. He says if you give freely, somehow or other in life, this is a principle. You don't even have to be a Christian, and this applies to you. He says, if you give freely, God does something in his reverse economy where you are blessed because you give, right? Because he's a giver. He's our heavenly father. He says, if you're stingy, you'll lose everything. What? That doesn't make sense. If you're stingy, you're holding on to everything, so you ought to have everything, right? Proverbs says, Solomon says, no, 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 if you're stingy, you're going to lose everything. And I know what you're thinking. Well, I know stingy people who still live in a house, they still live indoors, and they still drive cars. I do too. But sometimes what stingy people may lose is maybe the most important things in their life. And it's not built out of wood and metal. He says, the generous will prosper, and those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. What? He says, the generous will prosper. I don't understand. 
I don't understand how if I live my life in such a way where if I'm refreshing other people, taking care of other people, thinking about other people, somehow God refreshes me, it's a paradox. It's a reverse economy. It's what Jesus is teaching. He says the generous will prosper. It's the difference between living life with an open hand and a clenched fist. It's the difference between living life with an open hand and a clenched fist. I want you to think about this for a second. When you live life with an open hand, if you're giving freely, God can put things in your hand. And as you kind of decide who you want to give things to, it's, it's all there. God puts them in your hand, and you give them to the people that you care about or to the causes you care about, and you stay living with an open hand. And your assumption is, my assumption is, is that as God is putting things in my hand, I am trusting God to provide for my needs as I try to help him provide for the needs of other people around me. And my hand always stays open because God can give to an open hand because I can receive his blessing. I can receive his gifts and I can give. And I maintain this kind of posture all my life. But Eric, I don't understand. How can living life with an open hand and giving your stuff away make you wealthy? Here's the answer. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Is that God blesses us when we are a blessing to other people. That's the principle. That's the principle. Sometimes he teaches us live with an o- to, to live with an open hand when we're going through hard circumstances and we develop empathy and compassion because we understood what it was like to be in a dark place. And so we're much more empathetic and compassionate on other people when they're going through hard times. So God teaches us to, he gives to us and we give to others because we remember how difficult life was in moments for us. So I wanna challenge you. He says, give. He says, give freely and you'll be wealthy. I don't know what God's going to bless you with when in terms of wealth. Sometimes your tires stay longer on your car and they don't wear out as quick. I don't know. But here's what I do know. God is challenging us to live with this posture where we're open-handed, where he can drop, he can bless, he can give, and we, and we allow people to pick out of our hand what they need with the people that we care about and the causes we care about. That's how it works. But there's, another, but there's another posture of, of how we can live. We don't have to live this way. We can live with a clenched fist. I want, I want to show you a picture of what living life with a clenched fist looks like. Right here. This is Hurricane Florence. <laughs> this is what Hurricane Florence made everybody do. Somebody shows up to buy water and there's none, right? This is what life looks like living with a clenched fist. It's, I've got to get mine. I'm afraid I'm not going to have any. And I've got to provide for my needs. And I've got to get mine. And I've, I've got to get some or, or it's going to run out. And sometimes that scarcity thinking that's driven by fear and greed causes us to, to demonstrate some erratic and irrational behavior. And we're afraid we may not get something, so we go get it and we hold on to it because we don't want to lose it. And maybe some of you came from backgrounds where you didn't grow up with much and you finally got some stuff and you're holding on tight because you don't want to lose it. And it's time to rewrite the script of your family. This is not an attractive way to live. 
This looks like greed and fear, and if I can take yours, I will. But this is a scarcity mindset. And what happens in this grip, what happens with this grip, the scarcity mindset, is we squeeze the life out of whatever is close to us. It could be a relationship. We squeeze the life out of it. Now we're crying about we don't have that relationship anymore. We squeeze the life out of it. We're not holding it this way. We're not, we don't have this posture. We're holding on tight to these things that God says, no, 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 no. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. My question for you is, do you have it or does it have you? You have it in this posture. It doesn't control you. You've got control of your possessions, your time, money, all that kind of stuff. You've got control of it with this posture. With this posture, it has you. You're under its control. You are being possessed by your possessions. So I want to challenge you. Live with this posture because here's what, it, here's what I think you and I do, and we have the tendency to do. We have the tendency to overestimate we have the tendency to overestimate what it takes for us to live off of, right? We have garages. We have rooms. We have storage attics. We rent spaces in town to store our stuff. I'm not going to ask you to embarrass yourself but by asking you to raise your hand if you have a storage site off-site of your property that holds stuff. But it's crazy how much we think we need to live. And it's also we overestimate what we think it's going to cost us to be generous. And so we get all nervous and we're like, no, it's going to cost too much or it's going to demand too much of me. And I don't want to be generous because we overestimate in our minds what it's going to cost to be generous. And that's not true. It's a whole lot easier than we think. But here's the big part. Here's the big part that I want us all to listen to is we underestimate we underestimate what God can do in our life when we are generous. We underestimate the opportunities that we can have. Listen, listen. We underestimate the influence we can have. We underestimate the gifts that he can put in our life. Sometimes it's relationships Sometimes it's wealth, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's opportunity, sometimes it's a perspective change. Sometimes it's a heart change. Sometimes it's understanding that we can become completely different people by learning to be generous. This is a powerful principle. And if we're willing to trust God, trust God on this principle, God begins to change us and help us to evolve and grow and we don't stay stagnant. So here's the reality that occurred to me as I was studying these passages this week. And here's my big idea that I'd love for you to take away from this message. Here we go. So here's the big idea. There is a cost for being generous, and there's a cost for being stingy. Which one do you want to pay? Because if you're going to choose to be generous, it's going to cost you time, energy, money. It's going to cost you your comfort at times to give it to God and to other people, that's the cost of generosity. But the cost of being stingy is far worse. 
And the scriptures teach us that there are things that we will lose if we are stingy. And I don't know what those things are. But, but I'm, kind of the, I'm, I'm kind of the person that if the, if the scriptures are telling me, if God's telling me, you could lose things that are very valuable in your life if you have a stingy posture, that's kind of enough for me to go, okay, God, I don't, I, I don't even want to think about paying that cost. I would rather think of the cost of what it's going to be to be generous. Because if we're going to have to pay either way, let's just be like our Father in heaven and let's just be generous people. So what now? So the action step is I started thinking about what it would cost us to be generous and some steps that we could take to kind of move you know, from not being generous to start being this. And I don't know where you are in your faith, and I don't know how new church is, uh, church is for you or following Jesus is for you. But I want to challenge you with three things. And I don't know where you are spiritually, watching online or in the room or, or at our other locations, but I, I want to challenge you three ways. Number one, I want you to step outside of your comfort zone. Now, I'm going to explain this in just a second, but in terms of generosity, I want you to kind of get it in your mind of where you are in your mind and what your comfort zone is of when it comes to generosity. And I want you to get all the way kind of out to the rim. <laughs> get all the way out to the rim. And I want you to get all the way out to the edge of your comfort zone. And I want you to be willing to take a step out of it. And here's why. You don't grow in your comfort zone. I don't grow in my comfort zone. Now, our brain loves to put us in our comfort zone because it doesn't have to think so much. We know what to expect. We know this. We know that. We, we go on autopilot in our comfort zones. But we don't grow there. You don't become who Jesus wants you to be there. Okay? So I want to challenge you to take, outside of your, uh, st- uh, take a step outside of your comfort zone for your personal growth in becoming like Jesus. Everything's on the line with this in two ways. Number one, practice this. Step outside of your comfort zone in the, in the practice of situational generosity, in the practice of situational generosity. And this requires you, situational generosity is being present. I'm going to say that really quiet. Being present in your situations. It requires you to be present in life, not on cruise control. It calls, it, it's, it's about being present in your relationships and in your family and in your work relationships. And, and when God all of a sudden does something and gets your attention in that moment, and if you're being present, he's going to put an opportunity where you can practice situational generosity. I want to brag on Rick Noonan this week. Rick is the husband of Gina Noonan, our serve director here at our Kernersville location. Rick has a private airplane and he heard about this thing called Operation Airdrop that was happening in the eastern part of the state this past week. And they were flying in bottles of water and diapers and all this stuff. So he took his airplane 
And he went and filled it up and joined lots of other pilots who brought their airplanes together. And they were dropping um, all these needed supplies to the eastern part of the state. That's situational generosity. That's taking what I have, and here's what I can do with what I have, and allowing it to show generosity toward other people. I don't know if you have an airplane or not. Most of us don't. But I'm going to challenge you to think about what you do have and how you can use that to practice situational generosity. This is all about our, our hurricane relief efforts on our website and on our app. That's situational generosity. That's I can give to a situation, boom, it's done. One situation, it's over. The second thing I want to challenge you to do is I want, I want to challenge you to practice planned generosity. Planned generosity. Here's what I mean by that. This is a routine of generosity. Carisha and I do this once a month on the same day. 10% of our income goes to the Summit Church. That's a planned generosity. Because here's what, here's what I've realized. Your routine creates results. Your decision to lose weight doesn't make you lose weight. Your routine of eating better and going to the gym makes you lose weight. And what I've realized is when, I, when we get a planned routine of giving down, we can, have, we can make so much progress in life with our church and our community when we plan to give generously. Now, for me, I'm much better at this than I am at this. I'm oftentimes not paying attention with this, and God has to kind of knock me on the head to help me understand, hey, I want you to do something in this situation. I'm much better at this. Now, I, now I don't know where, where you guys are on this, but the challenge is plan your generosity. It's not just about the, you know, an emotional feel that day, and you go, oh, I want to give to that. No, 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 no. Choose a cause that you love and put it on your calendar and give to it. That is maturity. So a woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shops, bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book but happened to see that the man sitting beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I would blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he would do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat. Then she sought her book, which was almost complete. And as she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There were her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. 
If mine are here, she moaned in despair. The others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief, she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. Have we made the assumption that we are generous when we're actually very stingy? You guys know what assuming does, right? Have we made the assumption that we are generous when we're actually very stingy? Here's why I want to challenge you to live this. Here's why I want to be this kind of person. And it's something that I ask God to help me do every day because my heart needs to be reminded of this every day. Here's why this is so important. Our Heavenly Father gives us the example in the book of John, one of the most famous passages in all of the scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave. He gave who? He gave Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He gave. He gave his life to the point of death, died for our sin on a cross, rose from the grave, and bought salvation for any and all who would trust in him. This is why this is so important. Your heavenly father's posture of generosity has always been this to you and to me. His posture of generosity has always been this to you and to me, regardless of the circumstances you've been through in life. And we've all had our share of hard knocks. I understand that. But your heavenly father's posture of generosity has always been this, regardless of the people and and the way that you've been treated. Your savior, Jesus, his posture has always been this to you. And he did it to the point of death. He didn't just do something kind for you. He made a sacrifice for you to unto death. What kind of world would we be living in if every Jesus follower had a posture of generosity that was like this? How different would our world be? And the way this starts, the way this posture starts is receiving Jesus as your Savior. You can't do this on your own. Your heart's not generous on its own. My heart's not generous on its own. My heart's selfish on my own. But when I received Jesus and when I trusted in Jesus to be my Savior, I noticed over time as I was walking with God that he began to open my heart up just like this and learn what it was like, learn the discipline of generosity. It's not an emotional decision. It's a discipline in your life. And that's what we learn from our Savior. And that is his hope and his wish and his desire and his prayer for you and for me. Guys, it's going to cost you anyway. It's going to cost you to be generous and it's going to cost you everything you don't want it to cost you to be stingy. Which price do you want to pay? 
Let's pay the price to be generous as we follow the leadership of our, of our Lord and Savior. I want you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for setting the example of generosity in our life. It's because you so love the world, God, you set the example. And you didn't just say it, you modeled it and you led the example and you sent Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin and you kept giving and giving and giving to the point of death to prove to us how much you love us. And I pray our posture as a church, as a community, as a state, as a country, that we would live with generosity because we're going to have to pay either way. Help us to pay the cost and the price of generosity. It's a much more noble price to pay. In Jesus' name, amen.